Maybe you've seen a medieval castle in a painting or a book. Maybe you've had the opportunity to lay your eyes on one of the historical structures in person. The medieval castle is a part of history that stands out because of the grand scale of the structures as well as the society that lived around and operated them. Countless fantasy stories have romanticized the castle from the time period of the Middle Ages as they naturally inspire a sense of awe and wonder when taken in. At the very heart of Disney World in Florida stands a replica of a fantasy castle from the story of Cinderella. How did these structures capture the human imagination and become so renowned in the society of today? Why and how were they built and for what reason? Let's take a look at the function and design of medieval castles primarily residing in Europe and see just what we can uncover. Hello and welcome to the Spark History Show, where we bring history to light. Take a dive with us into history and hear the real accounts of the stories of the past as they actually unfolded. Explore with us as we shine some light on the amazing events that shaped our world into what we have today. We are going to recreate the stories of the past to better understand the struggles and triumphs during the most epic moments in history. This is the Spark History Show. Let us begin the journey. The Middle Ages consisted of a time period from the 5th century up until the 15th century, that's 1-5, when the Renaissance transformed Europe. Many historians prefer to call this time in history as a medieval period instead of the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages, as these names have a negative connotation that make it appear as though it is a time in history that can be overlooked. This probably should not be the case at all. One of the main reasons behind a name such as the Dark Ages is that the period started with the fall of the mighty Roman Empire which was a very technologically advanced civilization, and this led to a time of great transformation for the societies of Europe. Although the change of the Roman Empire greatly affected the way the world operated, there were still many advances during the medieval period. After the empire collapsed, much of the order and trade that had been operating under the protection of the empire was transformed. An interesting note is that when the Roman Empire collapsed, the knowledge of how to create concrete was lost, and many types of grand structures that were once built using the technology, for example, the Pantheon in Rome, were then technologically superior to what could be built during the medieval period due to the loss of this technique. Castles came about during this period of strife after the collapse of the empire. Castles were created as fortified military positions to assist kings and barons in the defense of their land. Lords of the time were frequently traveling and fighting in foreign lands, and castles provided a safe refuge along their path and also ensured it would be more difficult to attack their homeland while they were away campaigning, as the castle would require potentially long siege to defeat. Some people might ask the question, why not just go around the castle if you're an attacker? Well, if an invading army came into the local territory, it would put them in a severe disadvantage to just march past the castle and toward their original target or another objective. These fortifications, while built for defense, also created a strong launching ground that could be used to initiate raids against an enemy and then fall back behind the safety of the walls. From the point of the structure itself, troops could march out and up to around 30 miles and engage any opposing force in the area. If they had horses, they could extend this reach even farther. In this way, the Lord was not only able to govern the surrounding land of the area, but also create a threat to an enemy force that would try to move through his land. This meant if you simply bypassed the castle as an attacker, you would have an enemy garrison of troops sitting either behind you or on your flank that could suddenly strike out at any moment. 
They could wipe out your supply lines. They could wipe out your reinforcements coming to give you aid. This is why it's not always the best idea to just leave that castle behind and go around it. The first castles that were built were usually Mott and Bailey castles, which were more primitive in nature than what you see in images from the medieval period. Well, most images anyway. When you see the grand stone structures that tower over the landscape, that's the more traditional view of a castle. One of the first Mott and Bailey castles was built at Mount Glone near the river Lior in France around the year 990. Now, forgive me if I mispronounce some of these names as they are foreign to me. As the early times were periods of experimentation, no two castles were created exactly the same, but many did have similar properties. The word Mott from Mott and Bailey comes from the Norman French word that meant turf. This part of the fortification was a great mound of turf, or basically a small hill. The size of the mounds ranged from 50, to 50 feet to 120 feet. On top of these artificially created hills, the ground was leveled, giving a foundation for which a defensive tower could be built on that flat surface. Imagine a large hill with the top cut off, leaving a flat surface. A tower was then constructed on top of this hill to be the central defensive point. The tower, which was built on top of this position, had different names throughout history, including the aforementioned tower. It also was called a keep and also a dungeon, spelled D-O-N-J-O-N. And that was the Latin term for dominating point. The term dungeon, that is D-U-N-G-E-O-N, as we know, that was later used to describe the cold, dark stone facility that housed enemy prisoners. They were often placed underground in the structure of the tower or keep. Back to the mound, though. The hill itself was constructed by excavating the land in a circle around where it was to be built. This allowed for another key aspect of the Mountain Bailey, known as the ditch. All the dirt that was drudged out to build the mound left a considerable trench in the ground, and the men of the time used this drawback as an advantage to create a ditch that would leave another obstacle for soon-to-be attackers. Now, as an enemy tried to storm up the castle, they would have to traverse this ditch surrounding the entire base before they could even get to the hill. Many of these ditches were filled with wooden spikes pointing upward to impale unsuspecting foes, and if the castle was by water, it could instead be flooded with the water to further hinder the enemy. The enemy would have to fill in the ditch with dirt or hay or other materials or have to build some type of device such as a ladder or wooden bridge to cross the ditch to even gain access to that hill. Once the enemy had found a way over the ditch, they would look up to the steep slope of the mound that they would now be forced to climb and then they would run into another obstacle that we had not spoken of previously. The defenders would also place a wooden palisade around the lip of the mound with sharpened wooden spikes pointing outward or upward, which would hinder enemies trying to climb the makeshift wall. The wooden palisade would just be a wall wrapped around the entire area there. The sides of the mound itself were at such a steep grade that horses would not be able to climb up it, and any men that tried would be severely slowed and exhausted and trying to make it to the top. With our modern transportation methods, we often overlook such defenses as a steep grade. The reality is that if you are a soldier weighed down by your gear and a weapon, and you had to storm up a steep hill while deadly projectiles were being hurled down upon you, well, it was tough work. 
If you visit the historic sites and castles in Europe and have a chance to walk up some of the steep inclines, which are part of the defenses, and you sit there and you end up sweating and a bit short of breath, then you can really start to understand what an impediment the terrain can be. The mounds were purposely made with such an incredible grade upward that the ability of the cavalry units to penetrate into enemy lines and be able to disrupt the enemy from the inside their own ranks was prevented. The hill was just too steep for a horse to actually ascend. The beasts of war simply couldn't make its way effectively up the hill. During times of peace, the distance from the ditch to the tower was more easily traversed by a ramp or a bridge that would be removed before a battle was initiated by an enemy. The ramp would lighten the steep grade and hazards of the defenses so that the area could be more easily used for you know, goods and transportation of people. And this is all during safe periods. All this talk about Amat and Bailey, and we managed to leave out an important feature, the Bailey. The Mott was usually the primary fortification with the dungeon or tower on top, but the Bailey was also an area that was protected from outside dangers by some form of wood or stone wall around the perimeter of an open area. Sometimes the Mott would be located in the center, and then the wall for the Bailey would encircle the Mott. Other times, the wall for the Bailey would encircle an area outside of the Mott, and then be linked by the wall of the Bailey to the Mott fortifications. If you pull up images of this on the web, you can visually see the many different forms of fortification styles that were used, and there was quite a variety. Architects of the time borrowed knowledge they gained from their travels in far-off lands, they experimented with the resources they had available, and also added their own creative touches to the defensive structures so that no two castles were exactly the same. To help visualize the Mott and Bailey, picture a giant circle. In the center of this circle, place a stone or wooden keep. Underneath the keep, place a hill with a steeply sloping grade that moves down and outward toward the edge of the circle. At that edge of the circle, form a ditch around the perimeter. So now you have a circle there, you have the grade going up, and you have the ditch going around the circle. This is the basic form of the mott. For the second part, take another circle and expound it out wider than was done for the Mott. Surround this circle with a nice wooden palisade wall just jutting up from the ground that would stop anyone from easily entering the perimeter. Inside this new circle, which is now our bailey, place a courtyard of flat open terrain. On top of this open terrain, now you can place the shops, the forges, the workshops that would cater to the people's needs in the area. Now that we have the circle for the bailey in your mind, Take it on one side and slowly merge it together into the circle that we created for the Mott in the way that you would see fit. Keep the thought of the Bailey as having a fluid border that can bend and mesh with the Mott any way that you see fit. You could have the two circles barely touching and a new wall will form to connect the fortifications. You could have the Bailey end up kidney shaped, smooshed up along the Mott. You can even place the Mott inside the Bailey and have the Bailey extended outward in a much larger circle encompassing the Mott. There are a number of ways to construct your visual representation of the Mott and Bailey, just as there were many ways for them to be constructed, constructed in this time period. Keep in mind that the builders of the past assimilated any natural terrain features that they could use into the man-made buildings to increase their effectiveness. Many of the early castles that were built in England came from after what is known as the Norman Conquest of England, which was initiated in the year 1066. 
The Normans had sophisticated techniques of their time to build defensive fortifications that the Saxons currently residing in England had trouble taking on militarily. The Normans themselves were from a northern part of France that had been conquered by Vikings in earlier times. A man by the name of Duke William of Normandy launched an invasion from northern France into Pavensky, England to make claim to the English throne. This is what initiated the Norman conquest. He traveled from the northern coast of France across the English Channel with what some believe to be as many as a hundred ships, and over the course of a single night, William and his troops traversed the 70-mile gap of the English Channel and made landing in the new territory. On the armada of ships, William brought with him both his own soldiers as well as mercenaries that he would lead into the heart of England. To gain an idea of the ships themselves, imagine the Viking longboats of popular lore with their square sails and extended narrow wooden construction bearing down on the coast of England. The length of a typical ship from this time period could be around 76 feet long. Once they made landing, an estimated 7,000 Norman troops embarked from their decks and onto English shores. The invasion force had arrived. Although 7,000 troops may not seem very large in today's standards, in September 28th of the year 1066, this was an extremely formidable invasion force entering England. But even besides the size of the force, there were some interesting items that the invaders decided to bring with them. The fighters brought about 3,000 horses for their army and a technique that was supposedly learned from the Byzantine Greeks by using sling harnesses to pull the horses through the water. The other amazing feat was that the Normans had assembled and constructed all the parts of a wooden castle, found a way to disassemble, disassemble all the parts of the castle, pack it all into their boats, and then successfully brought all of the materials ashore with them on arrival. This makeshift fort had been completely assembled in France, taken apart, shipped across the English Channel, and then they went and rebuilt it on English soil. Once the soldiers were ashore, they took advantage of an old Roman fortification in Pavinsky and built their, well, what is basically their prefabricated castle. They built it right on top of the ancient Roman fortifications. At this time in England, now remember this is the year 1066, there were only about six castles in all of England, and most were just minor fortifications. The castles that the Normans brought to Pavensky was assembled before the end of the day that the Normans arrived on shore. Imagine as a soldier sailing ships of war through the entire night, and then upon landing on shore, erecting an entire fort before the day was over. Sounds like a nice day's work. The Normans were very keen of castles and continued to build them both throughout their invasion while traveling through England as well as after William became the king of all of England and what is known to history as the Norman Conquest. After marching on from Pavensey, William constructed another Mott and Bailey castle in Hastings. He also built castles in Wallingford and Burke Hampstead. While the Normans expanded their control of the land in England, they fortified the positions with castles to ensure that they would have a minimal chance of being overthrown. Of course, once you conquer a territory, you can't have any revolution starting under your watch, right? The Norman conquest with William the Conqueror is a significant event in our review of castles in history as it helped change the use of the castle of medieval times into what we think of today. The Normans had been using castles in France to protect themselves from Viking invaders, and then they began using them to protect themselves from Saxon counterattacks once they were in England. From this time point on, castles became a major feature of the landscape of England. 
Some of the most famous castles of England, including the Tower of London and Warwick Castle, were commissioned by William the Conqueror after he claimed the throne of England. Castles had evolved from the first introduction to northwestern Europe when Charles the Bald ordered their construction to defend against the Vikings to the familiar Mott and Bailey castles that were being built in England. Castles sped spread throughout Europe as an effective means to protect and dictate terms on a territory, and they fit well into the political system of feudalism. This is the system that developed in the time period where a lord or baron would reign over his subject with a strict caste or hierarchy system. As we march onward through time, we see that the sophistication of castles grows significantly from their, their meager wooden mountain baileys of the 11th century to stone castles with multiple levels of fortifications. The Mott and Bailey structures continued to be built until the 14th century in situations where it was more time and cost effective to build them than the alternatives. But the wooden structures did always have one glaring vulnerability. Fire! If the wood could be ignited, then the whole structure would be put at risk of being engulfed in flames and destroyed. In many locations, defenders tried to prevent the structure from taking to light by placing wet animal hides over the wood. This meant if an arrow or torch was thrown onto it, a fire would not immediately be started. Wooden forts would also eventually rot as their basic building material did not fare well against the weather over time. Just take a look at a log in the forest as it slowly rots away and turns into mulch. And then think about the stone sitting in the forest, which has probably been there for hundreds of years and is just sitting there untouched and unmoved. By the 12th century, most of the castles being built were constructed of stone. This change in building materials led to increased costs and maintenance, as well as potentially many extra years of construction. The takeaway, of course, was that they were less susceptible to fire and were harder for enemy siege craft to bring down or smash through. The more formidable structures needed to be placed on suitable sites where there was a flat and strong foundation of earth that could support the weight of the heavy stones stacked one upon the other. If you think in today's times, you can build a standard wooden house and have it built up rather quickly. But if you would like to construct a brick house, the cost of the materials will go up substantially. This was true in history as well. Many of the stone castles that were built had to import the stone from elsewhere, which significantly increased the cost. While many areas of Europe had plenty of forests and ample supplies of wood, not every location had a quarry with the right amount of stone to build a giant castle. It is during this time period that the castle became more than just a fortification in a time of war. The structures started to become the judicial and administrative headquarters for the surrounding territory, a storehouse of goods, a home for the lord and garrison defense point during times of war. The structure of most of the newer stone castles changed from the older Mott and Bailey style and developed into what is known as the stone or square keep. A good example of this is the Tower of London, which William the Conqueror had built once he had gained control of England. The Tower of London was built smack dab in the center of what we know of today as the city of London, the heart of the city. It was said that the building was first constructed of wood, but was then refitted into a stone keep within the next 12 years. Throughout history, you can see that many of the fortifications that were built by earlier generations were retooled and refitted for the defenses of a modern age. Many of the Roman positions which had been picked for the strategic importance were reconstructed from their ruins into wooden and then stone castles during the Middle Ages. Construction of the tower had started in 1077, and the Grand White Tower, which is the keep in the castle called the Tower of London, still stands strong today. 
The castle survived to this day through both world wars and is an excellent destination for London tourism, where the structure and designs from medieval history can be observed with a well-maintained structure. It was upgraded and expanded many times from the original design of the stone keep. Another example of the newer fortifications would be the castle with a square keep, Dover Castle, built in the 1180s. The castle had been upgraded many times throughout the years, as were many of the defensive fortifications with features such as additional walls, but our main focus here would be the keep itself. The structure seems basic, usually just a square stone building with towers built into each corner. Many stone keeps were constructed in England over the coming years. William helped secure his victory over the Saxons by providing grants of land to his fellow Normans that had once been held by the defeated English nobility. To secure their lands and prevent uprisings, many of the lords then helped construct and maintain castles to oversee their newly acquired territories. Many of the stone keeps that were becoming prevalent during this time period would have their entranceway on the second story of the structure as part of their defense. During peacetime, there would be some form of a wooden staircase or ramp built to allow access to the doorway. If you were to visit the Tower of London today, you can see the wooden steps restored to allow tourists to enter the second story entrance of the central keep. When a siege broke out, the steps would be demolished and this would create another barrier that would have to be overcome by the attackers. How would they get up to the second floor to enter the keep? To slowly wheel a battering ram up to the keep at ground level and pound away at the entrance all while being attacked may be slightly difficult. Creating one of those battering rams that was high enough to hit the gateway on the second story, that was much more cumbersome. After the door would be breached, the assaulting troops would then still have to use ladders or find another way to successfully reach and enter the second story with all of their men. If you look at ancient times when the Romans built walls, towers, and forts which contained stone, you can see that many of the structures were built in square shapes. This proceeded into medieval times and tower construction until attackers started to locate weak points with this type of design. The weakest point on a square tower is one of the corners. As the enemy was laying siege, they would push up, 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 and then finally up to the wall. And under the cover of shields and wooden walls to protect them, they could start bashing away at the bottom corner of the tower using the metal tool, the pick. They wouldn't just hack away at any area though. They would purposefully break away at the corners of blocks in the lower levels of the wall and only at the corners to start. They wouldn't just smash away at the center of the blocks aimlessly. There was a methodology and plan to their attack. After softening up the area, they could plow into the wall with their battering ram and smash the stone holding the corner of the tower together. Another option for attack would be to set wood and brush ablaze at the base of the tower, which would weaken the stone after it was softened with the picks or battering ram. These tactics would eventually compromise the structural integrity of the tower as the corners were the load-bearing portion of the tower, and this had the potential to cause the stone above to break down and crumble once the supporting foundation was eliminated. This could lead to the whole tower, or at least portions of it, collapsing. How would you like to be standing on, say, a 100-foot tower in the air, only to suddenly feel the stone below you rumbling and start crashing down? The very floor beneath you giving out, and the feeling of falling, crashing downward onto your death. The good news would be that if you were only disabled from the first part of the fall, the stones that would be surely piling down on top of you from the rest of the tower collapsing would surely put an end to your misery. As time went on, the drawbacks of square towers were realized, and towers started to be built circular in structure. 
This complicated matters for the engineers of the time who preferred having square rooms on the inside for the comfort of the guests. After all, the castle was a living quarters for those inside. Some castles were even built with the rooms square, and then a rounded shell stone layer was built on the outside of the square rooms to form the tower in a circular shape while still allowing the engineers to maintain the comfortable square-style rooms they wanted on the inside. In another attempt to ward off compromising the foundation near the ground, which we discussed previously with the miners using picks at the base, many walls and towers would be bowed outward towards the bottom with extra stone. In essence, the bottom sections of the wall would be built thicker than the higher levels. This meant that if the attacker wanted to get to a point where they could compromise the foundation, they would have to first break away through many layers of extra stone in between them and the target foundation stones while constantly being bombarded from the ramparts above with deadly projectiles. This would significantly increase the time before the attackers were able to access the critical weight-bearing stones in the structure of the walls and towers. In the Middle Ages, this style of structural modification had a few different names, including batter, talus, or plinths. If you look at most of the towers on castles, they jut out distinctively from the walls. Why did they do this? Why were the towers not even with the rest of the wall? As had been discovered in Roman times, it was hard to fire directly down from the top of the wall onto attackers at the wall base underneath you. That was directly below you. You would have to reach out over the ledge to hit them. To mitigate this drawback, the Romans created and placed towers periodically along the wall to enable them clear lines of fire against any of the poor saps that actually made it all the way to the wall itself. Medieval towers naturally put this knowledge to practice when building their own stone defenses. Having the towers jut out from the wall meant that archers could fire straight down at the enemy from their positions and not have to hang out over the wall to get the correct angle at the enemy. The stone keeps continued to be built across England and France during the 11th and 12th centuries, and many of the Mott and Baileys from earlier times were rebuilt with stone. Wooden towers were replaced with carefully cut stone keeps, and wooden palisades that guarded the baileys would be transformed into strong stone walls. The walls themselves became more advanced. Masons would carefully cut stones and use them to create the outer levels of the wall, while the center of the wall was usually filled with rubble. This easily filled the expansive volume of the center. Some of the stone structures in England were known to reach 60 feet in height. To give you an idea of the scope of a project to create a castle, here are some figures from the book the Medieval Castle, Life in a Fortress in Peace and War. King Edward I of England was building many strong castles along the Welsh border to protect newly acquired lands. The book describes the amount of resources that went into Balmaris Castle in the year 1296. 400 masons were at work cutting and laying stone, assisted by 1,000 mortar and lime mixers, 200 carters and 30 smiths and carpenters. As the Welsh were only too ready to disrupt their activities, a force of 130 soldiers, including 20 crossbowmen, were there to frustrate their efforts. The book also indicated that the castles of the time would have cost the equivalent to around $58 million when you translate it into today's money. That's when changing it from British pounds to dollars, US dollars, and adjusting for years of inflation. This is still only an estimate, as there are many hidden costs that were not included in the official records when building castles, and also, when you relate purchasing power over an extended time period such as this, the calculations can end up a bit off. I hope that gives you a nice overview of the amount of time and effort and resources that went into building these grand structures called castles. 
but this does conclude part one of the Medieval Castle series. If you like what you heard so far, please check out the website sparkhistory.com for more information as well as other episodes and series. To continue the story, check out part two of the Medieval Castle series. There, we will speak about how the structure of the stone keep evolved as time went on into the later Middle Ages, and new defensive techniques had to be created to stay ahead of attacking armies. Thank you for listening to the show, and have an awesome day.